Welcome to Doe, a podcast where we discuss John and Jane Doe cases from around the world. And introduce yourself? Oh yeah, I'm Allison. <laughs> and I'm Kat. <laughs> this episode's forensic fact is very relevant Ooh. to my case. Oh, Keep this in mind. Okay. doke. It's about sex determination from skeletal remains. Oh. So there's three things in a biological profile that forensic anthropologists can build. So that's Age, ancestry, and sex. Ancestry, that's pretty much just based on the skull. There's like a, something to do with the femur that you can kind of use, but mostly it's the skull. So with sex determination, you can only do that with adults. So if you have like children's remains or anything, you cannot determine their sex based on skeleton, lo- skeleton alone. You'd have to use DNA. And that's because... There's no really, like, sexual dimorphism in our skeletons until, like, after puberty. Which makes sense. Exactly. So, like, for instance, typical, typically males have, like, more robust skulls, like, thicker because there's more muscle attachments and stuff like that. And female pelvises um, get wider and there's, like, a different shape to it. Stuff like that. Mm. Also interesting is after, like, menopause and whatever male menopause is called, there's a term for it. There is a term for it. There is a term. I'm assuming neither of us remember it. I'm calling it male menopause. Great. Is the skeletons start looking like the opposite sex. Oh. So male skeletons will start looking more female, and female skeletons will start looking more male. And that's why when you look at elderly people, they kind of look the same. It's true. Because the skeleton is just kind of... Almost like reverting back to childhood. Benjamin Buttoning. It is. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, you cannot do sex determination on a child's skeleton based on morphological features alone. So, That's the, the the features on a bone. So we're all just going to put that in our back pocket. Put that right in your pocket. And we're going to be pulled out, out later. When you do your case. Okay. All right. Let's hear yours. I'm so excited about this one. Only because of the name. I've just been seeing this name in our spreadsheet for, like, what, two years now? Because actually, yes, two we years. We procrastinated. I, yeah, I started doing the notes on this one two years ago. And I had been wanting to know about it just because of the name. And I know nothing about this case, and I'm very excited. I'm super excited to tell you about both of my cases. Yes! Seriously, I almost started texting you stuff when I was looking it up. But then I and realized... And then you behaved yourself. I behaved myself. Buckle in, because this is the cheerleader in the trunk case. Yay! So, on August 24th, 1982, hikers looking for mushrooms found a steamer trunk in the Frederick City watershed in Maryland. They called police, who opened the trunk, and discovered skeletal remains inside, along with a dark-colored towel. Okay. Oh, can you imagine how creepy it would be to just be, like, in the forest? I'm assuming it's a forest looking Mm -hmm. for mushrooms. And you just see a trunk Do you know how much creepier that would be on mushrooms? Oh, my God. That'd be terrifying. (laughs) They would never be the same again. And, like, did they, did they open? No, the police opened it. The police it. opened it. That would be me, too. I'd just be like, there's something weird out here. Yep. And I don't, I... Let's call the people who are paid to it's like, open I am weird not, stuff. I'm not prepared for this. My brain will never be prepared for whatever could be in there. Yep. Please come. Okay. My Oma and Granite's place, they mm-hmm. have what we call the jungle. It's just, like, this strip of forest between their property and the next property. <laughs> but there's, um... It, there's just like this mini fridge. I think. Do not oh open no, it. ice box. It's an ice box. Oh wow, that's just been sitting there forever. <coughs> yeah, and like my granddad put it there. He just kind of abandoned it there like decades ago. 
but it's still really creepy. It's still sitting there rusting, and even though I know he put it there, it's very and there's creepy. Probably nothing in there. I don't trust it. No. I'm like, <laughs> nope, I would not trust it either. It's like, so don't leave your appliances in the woods, please, I guess, is the moral of that story. Yeah, that seems like a, just a general life rule. <laughs> if you're standing in the dining room, you look at the jungle, it's like, oh, there's there's the rusting icebox. Oh, boy. Yeah. So there you go. That's my little aside. <laughs> when they opened the trunk and found these skeletal remains, uh, it was of a white female with brown or auburn medium length hair between the ages of 18 and 45. The Doe Network says she was 5'2 to 5'6 in height and 100 to 130 pounds. NamUs says that they cannot estimate the weight, but the Doe Network gave us that weight. So my question is, how do you determine how heavy or how what someone weighed if it's a skeleton? You can't. Okay, so... Obviously, I'm going to go with Namus on that then. Yeah, well, I see your little note there. How do they figure out when it's a skeleton? Exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark. No, the, the Googled one you're like. Oh, yes, I did. Okay, so I Googled a bit, and it says that a skeleton is 15% of a person's body weight. But bones don't change if you gain weight, right? It's no. like your bones are just your bones. Yeah. So, I mean, they can get they can get um, more robust with, like, muscle stuff. Like, if you're a weightlifter, then you'll have... The, the bumps on your skeleton, essentially, oh. will get bigger because of the muscle attachments. Right. But, yeah, so that's just... <sighs> well, wherever I got that from is wrong, basically. Well, or it's, like, a really outdated thing, or it's just... It's so general it's that... It's like a general rule. I, yeah, so ba- just... Yeah. You can't determine someone's weight just based on their skeleton. It, that's what I thought, because <laughs> I can't. keep seeing skeletal cases with weights attached to, like, their statistics or whatever, and, and it makes me really confused every time yeah, I see it. Yeah, because it's assuming, like, one type, one body type, essentially. Exactly. Like, this is the general, if you're 5'2", you are this weight, which is so wrong. Yeah, and it's going to be based on available, like, forensic cases and skeletal collections. So, like, um, at my school... We have a lot of, I think it's a lot of older white men in our skeletal collection. I think we have a bunch of Middle Eastern as well. But it's pretty much like who's donating their body or probably less ethical of how these skeletal collections were built before we got them. Stuff like that, so. With those skeletons, you have the weight attached. Because you... If we know that... Yeah, if you know who the person was, like Portugal... Portugal is, um, um, how do I say it, Coimbra, Coimbra College or something like that. So the university there, mm-hmm. the way it works in Portugal, if I'm remembering correctly, is uh, when you die, you're buried for a certain amount of time. So your family's kind of renting this, um, oh. the burial. And then after a set amount of time, your body is removed and then you're added to a skeletal collection. So they have all of your information. And they do this with everybody? Yeah. Whoa. That's pretty cool. Right? It's like, can we all do that? That's but it's a lot of data. Yeah, because unlike like Canada, we have tons of places to bury people. But when you have something like Portugal or like Italy or Spain or England, you've only got so much right. space. So yeah, so a lot of um, a lot of research can happen at Coimbra because they can look at, say, you're looking at female skeletons from this age group, and you can look at that. Or wow, so there's a lot of information there. So basically, we're kind of um, limited by what skeletons were available to examine, to, like, guess weight and stuff like that. Right. So 
There's no way to determine. Yeah, there's no reliable way. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for answering that. You're very, my very long sign. <laughs> well, it's just something that has always bugged me. Yeah. It's thought that she died between 1972 and 1982, and I think the body was probably there in the trunk for three or more years. So, and they found her in 1982. Okay. So, like, late 70s is probably what I'm guessing. There's no DNA. There's no fingerprints. But she did have dental records and a lot of work. She had two crowns, a root canal, a few silver fillings, and a gold filling on the upper right side of her mouth. And some of her dental work looks like it was done by students, potentially so that she could get dental work done at a cheaper rate. Which is smart. Yeah. Because they have, like, they'll have the train ones, like, they're watching over. Yeah, it's not like the first year student's like, I don't know, maybe I'll do this. (laughs) That would be terrifying. That's terrifying. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Um. So this is why she's called the cheerleader. This in the is trunk. what I've been so curious about. She had spondylolysis. I'm realizing now. I'm I didn't pretty look sure up how that's actually that. I, that sounds right. So spondylolysis is a stress factor or defect in the pars interarticularis of the vertebral arch, usually in the lower lumbar vertebrae or cervical vertebrae. This can be caused by genetics or sports where you have to arch your back a lot, such as cheerleading, gymnastics, weightlifting, football. It's also in a couple of, on a couple of websites they mention her pelvis and hips uh, have wear on them. So I'm okay. assuming because they've mentioned that it's different from the spondylolysis. Yeah, I'm assuming so. So that would yeah. just be like addition, like maybe additional information like that additional could support wear. this. Like if yeah. she was doing like athletics, that would make sense. Like especially if gymnastics or dance or cheerleading or whatever it does use a lot of leg movement yeah so she was probably a cheerleader or doing gymnastics or something Something. like that that's basically all we know about this case really and yeah have they was it just they couldn't do dna at the time because it was you know i don't know i don't know if it's one of those situations where like it was so degraded or it was also 1981 no i'm just saying that like maybe there was just okay so we don't know when yeah like, if they've tried to take DNA. No, I don't know about that. Or if they yeah. just were saying there's no DNA because it was the 80s. Right. Okay. I'm assuming they just said there's no DNA because it was the 80s. Okay. Um, so, everywhere you look on the internet, this case has a ton of people suggesting potential matches. Oh. So, I'm just going to mention one that caught my eye instead of going through all of them. Okay. That's fair. Because we don't have DNA and stuff like that, uh, some people have put... Photos of missing woman over her skull. Oh, yes. Which is so cool, but at the same time, I think that every single one of them is her. Yeah, that's the hard part. But no, that's that's a really old school technique that yeah, is actually really still cool. is still used. But yes, um, I read. That was really um, cool. I will probably do this case in a later Ooh. episode. But there was one case that I found researching this where that was all they had. Like they identified her through the superimposition. There was, um, I think, maybe the first case that that was used for it was like that was literally all they had to identify her i think she was like murdered by her husband something like that and it was like 30s maybe oh wow yeah we talked about my forensic uh facial reconstruction okay so this is the one case or the one potential connection that i'm going to talk about okay but literally if you go on web sleuth the thread for this is just like pages and pages and pages and pages and there's lots of rule outs on namus yeah but this one is the user Persimmon Pluo on Reddit found an article about a family from Bangor, Maine, looking for Sharon Smith, who went missing on August 25th, 1980. 
She was a mother of two, and she was a waitress and a dancer at a place in Bangor called the Paramount Lounge. So maybe spondylolysis Like, was it exotic dancing, or was it just, like... I think it was, like, exotic dancing. Um, a lot of leg movement, and I think a lot of arching stuff, just from, like, the two pole dancing classes I did. Yeah. I am not meant to be a pole dancer, let me tell you. So this could be spondylolysis caused by vigorous dancing, and maybe she was wearing high heels. I don't know if that causes it. Maybe there's a lot of back arching in high heels. I can see that. And she does bear a resemblance, I will show you, in some of the photos to the cheerleader facial estimations, but honestly, the sketches and recreations in this case are all over the map. Oh, one of those. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a couple of those where it's like, are you guys even looking at the same person? Like, is this, did you get mixed up with a different school? Like, are you confused? Bangor is an 11-hour drive from Frederick, and I could see someone driving that distance to throw police off the case. How long is it? Uh, It's 11 hours. hours. Okay, yeah. Oh, we've definitely seen cases like that. Yeah. And we've also seen cases where the police do not talk to each other at all. And to this day. Yeah. So I think that could be a fair assumption. So in this case of Sharon Smith, they dug under her on and off boyfriend's house, but they didn't find any of her remains. So she still hasn't been found. This could still potentially be her. And the post, the Reddit post where Persimmon Plubo mentioned this article is two years old, but I don't think I saw any rule-outs on NamUs. Okay. Maybe it was ruled out since the last time I checked, but I don't think she's been ruled out yet. Oh, does NamUs kept track of, like, rule-outs? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's, like, a... I can't remember the exact link you click on, but they've got a list, which is so great. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know they did that. Yeah. That's awesome. I really hope that they, like, look at that. Yeah. So for a case with no DNA and no fingerprints, I think, honestly, calling it the cheerleader in the trunk is kind of good marketing because it gets people interested in the case. Well, I think that's why, like, a lot of these cases have, like, the kind of catchy names, like Orange Socks. Yes. Lavender Dough. It's something where you're going to say, oh, hey, yes, I remember this case. like, Grateful Dough. Yes. It's ones where it stays in your head. The nude and the nettles. Yeah. So it's, like, I think it's part, like, media- just hyping up names as they do. Yep. Like Doc Dahlia. As they yeah, do. Yeah, as they And do. also a mix of, like, it sticks in your head. I think just by, like, process of elimination, maybe they'll find something. But also it's really heartbreaking that there are all of these cases in the early 80s in oh, Maryland. Just from that one state in this one time period. Yeah. Uh, so that's this case. Yeah, that's, I was actually picturing, like, someone like a body in a cheerleading outfit found in a car trunk that would probably give them more to go on because the outfit will probably correlate with the school yeah that's why i was like how is this not solved this makes more sense yes it was the spondylolysis in her back someday we'll know how to say that i think i'm doing pretty good at it maybe i kind of want to look it up spondylolysis oh i was right spondylolysis 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 (laughs) there's something deeply wrong with us it's okay this is the trunk where oh, they found so her. Creepy. It's very creepy. If okay, I saw that, also, in the how woods, many of us have that in our house somewhere? Yeah, it's pretty. Um, it looks like a pretty common steamer trunk. Yeah, like I definitely have one in my house at some point. And here we will go on the magical journey of oh, no. how many different estimations there are. Oh no! So this is one from the eighties. Mm. She's got thick eyebrows and wide eyes and bangs, and she's more of like a, I guess, like a heart Squat? or an oval or. It's a very squat face. Yes. And then you can see that there is some more. It's like either she's got a squat face or she's or got a very oval, like, like a very long face. face. And then 
You can see her skull. Oh, wow. So I was going to ask if this break in her skull looks like something that they'd do in autopsy type thing. That does look like an autopsy one, because um, when they take off the top of the skull, they'll leave a notch. Oh. So then when they put the skull back on after autopsy, it just kind of clicks it's like place. a little puzzle piece. So this is so probably... So that, one, that one's probably from the autopsy, but that... This giant hole in her head? Like, unless they were being really... What's the opposite of careful? Careless? If they were being like, oops, I broke it! Yeah, then that's probably... Or cause of death wasn't known. No, I don't think they know the cause of death. Okay. Then who knows why there's a hole in the skull. Right. And then this is Sharon Smith. Oh, yeah. So... Which would... Like, she's fitting into... Especially the nose with Carl's? Yeah. Sharon Smith looks a lot like Carl's. But having said that, like I said, there's so many other people that have been mentioned in this case that... It's one of those where it's like, oh, everybody sounds like a match. Yeah, ev- like literally every single person sounds like a match for this case. Oh, it's so frustrating. So it's one of those ones. Well, hopefully... Hopefully we get to update this one. Yeah. Okay, so my case is one that I first heard about in my intro to forensic anthropology class. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not one, obviously, my prof worked on because this like predates her by a lot. But she showed us, um, like, news footage of her being part of a search in Stanley Park. Oh. Yeah. So then she told us a bit about this case, and it's one that's kind of stuck with me. So today I'm going to tell you about the babes in the woods. I know this case by name, but I don't know much else about it. That's okay. I just know that some babes were found in the woods. Okay, so there is a ton of info about this case online, which gets a bit overwhelming. Mm, So everything I'm going to tell you is taken from a really good blog post written by Sheena Koo that I found on the Vancouver Police Museum website. Um, The post was written about a lecture given by retired unsolved homicide unit detective Brian Honeyburn. I think it, wait, retired unsolved homicide unit chief detective Brian Honeyburn. So, oh, what were we supposed to pull out of our pockets for this case? Oh, you'll see. Okay, I'm jumping the gun. You keep that in your pocket. Shh. You keep it okay. in your pocket. Keep it in my pocket. On January 14th, 1953, mm-hmm. an employee for the Stanley Park Parks Board in Vancouver, BC, British Columbia, came across a patch of ground in the woods that made a strange crunching noise when he walked across it. Upon further inspection, he found a bunch of bones embedded in the dirt, which later proved to be the remains of two children. Oh my god. By the way, this is a child's case. It's probably given by the name of the... Babes. Yeah. Yeah. Under the heavy layer of brush and leaf litter, investigators also found a decomposing fur coat, pieces of children's clothing, two children's aviation caps, a lunchbox, a woman's size seven and a half penny loafer, and a layman's hatchet believed to be the murder weapon. And let me show you the penny loafer. There's the penny loafer. Oh, wow. I have lots of pictures for this. A doctor determined that the remains belonged to a five to seven-year-old boy and a seven to nine-year-old girl, and that they had been in the woods for six years, meaning they had been murdered in 1947. And so, uh, investigators called upon the public asking for witnesses who had seen a woman with a young boy and girl in Stanley Park during 1947. And although they received received hundreds of tips, none panned out. Now, what problems can you identify? Well, I feel like uh, I know everything now that you've told me that uh, you can't identify if a child is, like, a female or a male. 
Exactly. I feel like Based the on- biggest expert right now. So thank you for giving You're me that. You're welcome. I'm <laughs> filling you with knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, you can't I, determine the sex of juvenile skeletal remains based on morphological features alone. You have to use DNA. It's the only way. They're working, like people are working on different techniques, but the problem is you need like a big enough skeletal collection of children. Right. Because you need to study children's skeletons, which is not easy. I can see where that would be a a problem. Children's skeletons, um, well, people are more protective of them, Mm. obviously. And also because children's remains are more fragile. Oh. So they don't last as long. So there's a lot of things. Um, Also, the post-mortem interval. So that's the length of time between a body, like a body's deposition in a spot and its recovery. So that's probably wrong. Because, I mean, they're they're just like, it was 1947 this happened. Very specific. And... So that's a very, like, six years is a very small window based mm-hmm. on, like, 1950s technology. hmm So in the blog, it pointed out that, like, in modern day, we'd be using, like, forensic botanists or stuff, like, looking at plant uh, growth plant and growth. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. With this, I'm not sure what he based it off of. It was just, like... I have a hunch. Six years. So to mitigate this issue of the uh, PMI, so post-mortem interval, mm-hmm. police should have at least been looking at cases from maybe 10 years earlier like within the last 10 right. years rather than like i'm not even sure they were looking at within the last six i think they were just looking at 1947 that seems like a large oversight mm-hmm. it gets worse oh great detectives put the unprotected evidence in two boxes which is an issue because the acidity of the cardboard eroded the evidence oh my god so that's the purpose between like evidence bags and all our different ways of storing things and there's special like paper you use so But they literally just chucked chucked it in in a a box. box. Yep. Great. One of the boxes eventually somehow ended up at the Vancouver Police Museum instead of, I don't know, in an evidence locker somewhere. And at one point, the children's skulls were displayed at the Pacific National Exhibition. Why? Which I think is like Vancouver's version of the CNE. Why would they put it? I don't know. Because my first thought was like, oh, to help with identification. But it's like, it's a skull. No one's going to look at that and be like, that's Jimmy's skull. Yeah, like that's not gonna help anybody no that's just it also seems kind of gruesome just a little like a lot like like don't do that yeah so obviously that didn't help with anything i'm so surprised i know right in 1996 brian honeyburn so the guy i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. became the head of bc's provincial unsolved homicide unit and he took on the cold case of the babes in the woods after getting the box of evidence back from the Vancouver Police Museum, the blog said wrangled back. So I'm like, did they put up a fight? I just picture him, like, lessoing the box and just, like, pulling <laughs> it. Just mine now. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Yep. He reanalyzed everything with new technology. So, like, 1996 technology. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, better than 1950s technology. Yeah. I mean, he probably put some stuff into bags. Quite possibly. <laughs> yeah. Did stuff properly. Um... Most importantly, he contacted Dr. David Sweet, a forensic dentist at the University of BC, who extracted DNA from the children's teeth. Uh, Oh, the result? These were not the remains of a little boy and girl, but two little boys who were brothers from with the same mother, but different fathers. That is useful information. Just a little bit. Yep. So now, more than 40 years after the babes had been found in the woods, and I couldn't help myself that with that sentence. 
Yeah. It's factual. Throwing in a dad joke. (laughs) (laughs) Police had to try and find witnesses who had seen a woman with two young boys in Stanley Park. At some point, essentially. Needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. Also, they're kind of, like, I see why, but they're also going off the assumption that it was a woman who, like, murdered them. Because they have the same mother. And also because of um, the fur coat, I think, was a woman's fur coat, and the shoe was found, like, in the same context. At first, I was like, that could have just been there already, but it's most likely associated. Yeah. Yeah. So there were some promising leads, and I'm just going to read these off the website. You see? Oh, um, but before I do that, (laughs) here's a picture of the crime scene. Oh, wow. So this is from when they found them. Yeah, it's like 1953 photo. Wow. Yeah, so that's what they're dealing with. It just looks like a pile of mucky leaves. Yep. And this is meaningless to me, but... Meaningless to me, too. It's by Lionsgate Bridge. Um, it's maybe north of Beaver Lake. Maybe. So, the leads. Hmm. One. A woman who stayed in the New Haven Hotel with two boys and then disappeared. Oh. Two. A woman from Missouri who hitchhiked to Stanley Park with her two young boys. The boys were wearing aviation helmets as well. Which they found Mm -hmm. as well. A woman, allegedly a sex worker, who lived with her father and two young boys in a house by the lighthouse at Prospect Point in Stanley Park. What number am I at? One, two, three, four. Four. A woman and a man who were seen with two kids at Stanley Park with a hatchet. The woman was said to have disappeared into the woods with the kids and the man. She returned later with only the man. She also had blood all over her legs when she returned. That is a wild story. Right? But here's the thing. They followed up on all these, all these leads? Even the bloody... Okay, I guess so. And either all of the, the children were still alive or the dates and times didn't match up at all. Oh, boy. And I'm going to guess, since this was now the 90s, that mm-hmm. they expanded the length of time. Like, they weren't just going 1947, but prob- I, my best guess is that the ones where the dates and times would be, like, after the remains were found. Because I can't see them rolling out. Like, if it was the 1930s, they would still be like, oh, okay, maybe. Right. Because, like, fur coats, they were around for, they were popular for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to guess it was, like, they were way off. Mm -hmm. And so now the latest lead from 2017 is a tip about a, quote, deranged woman running out of the park in 1944 missing one shoe. Whoa, that kind of fits the shoe Um, that was found. Honeyburn hopes that if this woman was ever apprehended, then there might be a paper trail. So quoting him... If the police had apprehended a distraught woman at that time in Vancouver, undoubtedly they would have sent her to St. Paul's Hospital or Vancouver General Hospital to get a psych assessment before she would be shipped off to Riverview Essendale. And this was a mental health and addiction center in uh, Coquitlam, which closed in 2012 after operating for almost a century. Oh, so if they did, if there was a paper trail and it ended at this place that closed, that could potentially be a problem. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. That's what he's kind of hoping, is that oh. they would, there would still be records. Like, 2012, they may have digi- um, digitized them. Yeah. All. So, like, what he's hoping is there would be, like, records from an, an arrest, records from transferring, like, the psych assessment transferring her to one of these places. Gotcha. And that they'd be able to follow that. In a sweet but questionable move, Honeyburn had the majority of the children's bones cremated and released them to the sea while retaining, quote, crucial bones for future DNA testing. But, well, that's, like, a nice gesture. Let's not. Yeah, let's keep all of the bones that are evidence. Like, you can lay them to rest, 
Mm-hmm. Like, but in a body bag. In a thing where you can exhume them. Yeah, where you can take them out and... Because then they're still being buried. But, like, like that's not... That's just not... It's, it's evidence, right? It is. Like, and with everything else, like, getting ruined by, like, acid and stuff, then... That's... Yeah. But... In 2018, investigators from the Vancouver Police Department announced plans to put the boys' DNA samples in online genealogy databases. That is so promising. Because they've seen how many cases have recently been solved based on that in the States. Hopefully, like, I think this is, like, the first really, like, promising lead in... How many years has it been now? Over 60? Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, been a long time. And the idea with this is... They know there's not going to be, like, a court case. They know there's no charges, but all they want to do is identify these boys. Give them their names back. Yeah, exactly. So the evidence, along with casts of the children's bones, are on display at the Vancouver Police Museum with everything laid out as it was found. And I have a picture of that. So this is just, like, in a display case. Oh, okay. And they've laid it out as everything was found. Oh, wow. Labeled. I don't know if this is the actual evidence or if it's just replicas. I sure hope it's replicas. But, yeah, like... Oh, yeah, you can see the shoe. Mm-hmm. Got clothes. Is that jacket zippers? See yeah, that? that says jacket zippers. And a lunchbox. Yep, the corroded lunchbox, the hatchet. So the way, the reason they did this kind of is just like a reminder of like, because it's such an old, well-known case. Like, mm-hmm. And also it was so botched with the assumption that it was a boy and a girl and so much time was wasted just focusing on this, just looking at the single year. Like so much yeah. was botched in the beginning. So it's also kind of a reminder to not, yeah. is to be more careful, really. To not get tunnel vision. Exactly. This is what, like, basically what you think it is versus what it the actually, evidence is yeah. telling you. Exactly. And yeah, so that is the babes in the woods. And if they are putting um, DNA samples into online databases, then hopefully we have an answer soon. Yeah, because there's been cases where they put it into the DNA evidence thing and it was solved in like four hours. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot happen when they finally do that. And it's like, oh, we have a match. So, hopefully... Hopefully, fingers crossed, this will yes. be an update. And especially if there were two different fathers, that oh. seems to give a bigger chance, in my opinion, because that's, like, two possible family lines. Yeah. And, like, a greater chance of somebody having put, some, yeah. put their DNA into one of these databases instead of just relying on one. Mm-hmm. So it kind of widens the search a little bit. Yeah, and three family lines if the mother had any descendants or relatives that had descendants. Okay, now. Oh my god, okay. I just like, I have to prepare now myself take a deep breath. and everyone who's listening because this case is wild. This is the case of Barbara Hess or Barbara Precht, who was previously known as the Pearl Lady. Pearl Lady sounds familiar. You've probably heard of this case. I hope that you have not done the deep dive that I have done so I can tell you this. But I don't recognize the other names. So a grain worker found a woman's body in the Ohio River on November 29th, 2006. She still had makeup on, and she had a necklace made up of two strings of fake pearls. One string was black, and one string was white. So that's where she got her name. Oh, okay. She had hazel eyes and light brown, blonde, or gray hair. She was wearing a black blouse and skirt, white socks, gray running shoes, and tan pantyhose. She had arthritis, well-maintained teeth, and only one dental filling. So it sounds like she... She sounds like a... So, sounds some, like elderly. And someone with probably some money. Oh, that too. But I was, like, picturing the outfit. I'm like, okay, yeah, I've seen yeah. I've seen this outfit. Completely. 
So she died approximately three days earlier, and she must not have been super decomposed if they could still see makeup, right? So the cause of death was unknown, so it could have been a suicide, a homicide, or an accident. But she had broken bones like she fell from height. It doesn't really say if there was, like, a bridge that she fell from, but I'm assuming there was. Yeah, because she was found in a river. Yeah, that could have, like, if she fell from a bridge and got taken downstream or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Okay. And there were no signs of foul play other than the fact that she's a dead... A dead person in a place where dead where people shouldn't be. Exactly. Yeah. Um, thank you for finishing that sentence. You're welcome. I knew where you're going. Thank you. Uh, so they put her on the Doe Network in NamUs, but no matches came up. Okay. She was finally identified in 2014 after her fingerprints were compared to a 1986 arrest record in Covina, California for shoplifting groceries. And they found her arrest under Barbara Hess. Okay. This is when Hamilton County Sheriff's Office Detective Brian Williams was assigned the case, and he found a Barbara Rose Hess born in Cincinnati. Okay. He finally found her husband, James Precht, six months later in Ohio due to a tip leading him to an apartment in Coryville, Ohio. He found Precht there, but Precht lied and said he was Jim Tooman and refused to show documents that verified his identity. Because that's not suspicious at all. So not suspicious. Super normal. Nothing weird happening here. Uh, Nope. So he was 79 at the time. He was arrested and charged with falsification and obstructing official business. And it sounds like he sent he spent about a month in jail, 25 days-ish uh-huh. for that. Prosecutors asked for him to be placed on probation because he's a person of interest in Barbara's death. Yeah. So I have no idea if he still is on probation or if that happened or if he's even still alive. Mm. I didn't really get any information on that, but they asked for it. And he never reported his wife missing, and they needed more evidence to actually charge him because they don't really know where he was at the time of her death. There's I- just... So many unknowns. And they also don't know if she was murdered at all. Exactly. There's so like, it's like... It's like, yeah, there's so much that they don't know. Yeah. So uh, when Brian Williams interviewed Precht, he said that it doesn't appear that he's suffering from health issues that would make it hard to answer questions. So I took that as there's no dementia, uh, there's no mental illness, he's still like cognizant, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, And he was apparently calm and well-dressed, wearing a shirt, tie, and blazer. And when he was told the news that Barbara was dead, he was a little surprised, but he remained calm. Hmm. Like, everybody handles news like that in a different way, but that was just Just based on the other information, it kind of sounds like he's used to hiding something. Yeah, that he's used to keeping a level hand. Because my first first thought here is that, not Bonnie and Clyde, but, like, um, they were both under fake identities and were used to, like hiding who they were, maybe moved around a lot or something like that. And yeah. so they had like a life of crime. And so that's why he's not reacting or telling anything. And that's yeah. why he's just like, this is just par for the course for him. That's kind of where my mind's going with yes, this. Me too. So there's a quote from Williams that said, he was concealing his identity and there are a lot of unanswered questions. I do not know how Hess died. Was her husband with her when it happened? Were they separated? Why didn't he report her? There are a lot of questions. There are indeed. There are. So they, via DNA and fingerprints, they have identified her. Yeah. Okay. Just gets more confusing from here. Awesome. So Barbara was born Barbara Rose Hess in 1937. She was from a wealthy family of lawyers based out of Cincinnati. She married James, who was a teacher, and he eventually became a school supervisor of Cincinnati Public Schools. And they had two daughters in Indian Hill, Ohio, which from my research sounds like a pretty well-off area. Okay. One night in 1983... One of their daughters heard armed intruders arguing with her parents. 
James later said the story was true and that the intruders had black suits and guns. And it sounds like only a few days later they left for California. Huh. Some sources say they fled, other sources say they moved because James had a job in California. To me, that seems very coincidental. A little bit. Uh, Brian Williams said that the move was about getting a better life. This just comes with the typical warning that everyone on the internet could be lying. Yep, yep. But a Reddit user called Curious Fluth said that they were friends with the youngest daughter and that when the family left, the house looked like they had just walked out the door and gone to the store. Like there were dishes in the sink and clothes on the floors. That was a lot of rhyming. Was it? Yep. Oh. And it was pretty great. I didn't even notice I was doing it. It was pretty great. But also, the creepiest situation ever. Like, so creepy. Yeah. So, I can't remember where I read this, but apparently they were also using different names in California, but she must have at least used part of her real name because they found her arrest record. Yeah. Under her real name. Yeah. It sounds like money was really tight for the family, despite Barbara coming from a wealthy lawyer family. Uh, There's a story about a guy named Walt Wyatt, who was a junior high teacher at the time, who knew James, I guess, from working at school. Yeah. Uh, So they met up, he met up with James in a restaurant in Ohio in 1984. So either he'd come back from California or that date of 1983 was actually later. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, James wasn't interested in eating. He said he was on his way to a business conference and forgot his wallet, so he wanted Walt to lend him 50 bucks. When Walt said he didn't have cash but he could write a check, James asked for 150. Sir. Right. Cheeky. It's very cheeky. But Wyatt ended up giving him 20 in cash and a $130 check. Okay. This is around $360 in 2019 money. Damn. And once he had the check in his hands, James promptly left the scene, but before he did, he gave Wyatt a business card of someone else. It was never specified who this person was, but they were fake anyways. Also, what a weird thing. It's like, thanks for the check, here's a business card. Of a random person who is not me. What? What? It's weird. Um, So James said he'd be back in town in a few days. And Wyatt said that he trusted James and gave him the money because of his job and the fact that James had married into a prominent family. So I guess this means, like, he thought that James would have a way of paying him back. Like, he had the money, just not at that time. And he was on the up and up. Yeah. So the check was cashed at a teacher's credit union. Mm -hmm. And when Walt didn't hear from James after a few days, he tried to make contact with this business card person, but it was all fake. And then he sat there going, why did he give me a business card? Why did I give him money? I'd just be stuck on the... (laughs) <laughs> like, what's where is the business this, card? Where is this business, like, yeah. I'm what's going know. on with this business card? <laughs> so, and just from a graphic design point, I really want to know what the card looks oh, like. So I. That's, I, I just, I really want to look at this card. And, like, who was it even for? What did it say on it? What was going on? So this many is questions. keep me up at night. This is why I wanted to tell you so that someone else... Oh, you just wanted to ruin my sleep, I understand. Yes, that someone else is, like, obsessed with this case, and it's not just me. It's so weird. There's speculation that um, Precht worked for the mafia. Apparently, there was a huge mob presence in Kentucky at the time. And apparently, Cincinnati's like across the river. And a quote from Brian Williams. We found that Precht had some kind of scheme and questionable business practices through pieces of anecdotal evidence. Okay. That is just enough information for me to have so many more questions. Right? But I could see... Like, the mob thing. Well, that was kind of my first thought with, with the, the, like, guys, guys in the, the suits, suits and the guns. And also, like, why would why they would possibly be using fake identities and moving around? 
Right? Like, someone's after them, it sounds like. And if she's from a prominent family, did maybe her family have mob ties mm. or something like that and introduced him to this? And Yeah. Or, Who knows? or was it like a Fargo situation where there's so, oh, there's many, so many possibilities? There's so many ways this case could go. So, cut to them in California. Okay. It sounds like they weren't doing well financially. A WKRC article. I thought you were going to say WKRP and I got so excited. No, RC. Described it as a vagabond life. Barbara was actually shoplifting food for the kids when she was arrested. Because um, it sounds like kid-friendly foods. Like, there was pasta, chocolate chip cookies, Pringles, cheddar cheese. Like, she was just trying to be a good mom. That's really like. sad. Well, when I heard it was shoplifting groceries. it's That's a pretty dire situation. Yeah, it's it, that. I think I only ever hear of that, like, a dire situation or, like, kleptomania. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this sounds like Like, the the only time, like, necessities really get shoplifted. Yeah, it's kind of sad. So, not long after the arrest, they put their children up for adoption. They dropped them off at an orphanage. And I'm not sure how old the kids were, but that sounds really traumatizing. And this is the 80s? Yeah. I had no idea that practice was still going on in the 80s. That was... Right? Because that was, like, really big in, like... The 50s and beforehand. Yeah, so apparently there was still an orphanage open in California yeah, in the 80s. Because I know, like, a lot of poor families would have to put their kids in orphanages because they just couldn't afford to raise Which them. Which sounded like this situation. Yeah, but I honestly had no idea this was still happening in, like, 86. Yeah, and the kids remembered the, in- or at least one of the kids remembered the intruder in 83. So they were probably very, like, with it. Like, it wasn't, like, like a four-year-old with foggy memories. Yeah, so it was, like, someone who was, like, old enough to remember everything. Yeah, it just seems like a really bad situation. Depending on the narrative you want to go with, they gave the kids away so they could have better lives, or they gave the kids away to protect them. Oh, or both. Or both. They could have better lives and be protected. Yeah. So, a quote from the Hamilton County Coroner. Okay, so Dr. Lakshmi San Marco. This wasn't a mom abandoning her children. This was the hardest decision she had to make to give them up for their own safety. That's what it seems to me. I want to hug this person because... She gets it. Yes. Because so many people will just automatically go with, oh, it was abandonment, whatever. It's like, but you're not looking at the situation. No. and Put yourself in her shoes. Yeah, there's... If she was willing to shoplift, to try and, like, to get chocolate chip cookies for her kids. This wasn't an easy decision for her. No, and something, something was happening. Yeah. She went from a prominent lawyer family to suddenly moving across the country. And also, my mind stuck on, like, what happened with her family? Because did she cut ties with them? Did they they disinherit her? Like, something happened there. Something happened. Maybe they didn't like that she was um, marrying this lowly teacher. Well, a lowly teacher that apparently had really shitty business practices and schemes out the yin-yang. Yeah, although if he was doing that before or after. That's true. That's See? We don't know! There's just... We don't there's know There's so anything. many possibilities. There's so many rabbit holes in this case. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. WebSleuth's user Anne7189 did some super good digging. Apparently, she's into big into genealogy, so she had... That's how she figured this all out. Um, So she found James Prext's addresses from California from 1993 to 2000. James also had P.O. boxes in the 90s in Cincinnati, and apparently other than on the birth certificate for her and her daughters and on her marriage license, there is no paper trail for Barbara. There are no addresses connected to her. It seems like she was just under the radar. Hmm. So thank you, Anne, because this info is like catnip. And now I am even more confused in the best possible way. Also, the paper trail thing is interesting because, again, with building the family tree, like, there's... Let me see. I think it's my grandfather. 
ridiculously hard to find information on him. It's so confusing. And then like my great grandmother, great, great grandmother, I'm not entirely sure she even existed. Like her name is mentioned on like a marriage license or um, someone's birth certificate or something, but I can't find anything about her. And I'm just like, were you a ghost? What's happening? Yep. That sounds like So yeah, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. Yep. There are some gigantic missing puzzle pieces and James said that he had no contact with his daughters. But at this point, I don't really believe James. Uh, another quote from Lakshmi Samarco, who is the Hamilton County coroner. She says, there are a lot of inconsistencies we have been told. There have been so many inconsistencies that we're going to have to get everyone together here under oath. I, yeah. 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 So that's about it. Um, also just a note, thank God for the Wayback Machine. I love the Wayback Machine. So good. I could not have found half this stuff without the Wayback Machine. Right? So this is another one where there's just... There's so the identity. Many, yeah. There's a ton of information, but we have no idea what what happened, how she ended up there. There's a whole bunch of other questions about the family that just, out of curiosity, I want to know. Yeah. That is a crazy case. It is wild. Also, I'm just um, picturing the coroner being like, you know what? Screw this. Everybody come here now. Yep. Everybody We are locking the doors. <laughs> yeah, we're going to we figure all, this shit out. We are going to go around the circle. We're going to take notes, we're going to put this together, and we're going to figure this out. Very much your kind of case. It is so my case. You are all about, like, secret identities and, like, just things where you just want to shake people and be like, who were you? (laughs) What happened? Why are you keeping secrets? Tell me everything. Well, I can only assume James is still alive. He was 79 in 2014, so he's probably still alive. Oh, yeah. He's probably still alive. And who knows if we'll have updates on that case. Yeah, I'm going to guess probably not. Yeah, because that, I think we'd only get updates if someone's willing to talk or if documents are found or if James, like, passes away and his daughters have more information or anybody, anywhere, something has information. There's so much about them leaving that is so mysterious. Yeah. And then how they lived in California and, like, the name change and the fact that she was not on anything. If he was in the mob, it seems like someone was going after her because he didn't change his name or whatever, but they don't have any record of where she lived. That's so weird. It just seems like she was hiding instead of him. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. Well, um, we need a sign-off. We still don't have a sign-off. You can check us out on oh, right. Instagram. You can check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Just uh, search for Doe Podcast. Uh, if you have any cases that you want us to cover, please get in contact with us. You can also email us at doepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can DM us, I guess. Yeah, or DM us. You can slide into our DMs. Send us a messenger pigeon. I would love that. You're not getting the pigeon back, though. I'm keeping that pigeon. Okay. It's going to be my new best friend. Okay, I'm not going to come over then because I hate beaks. Now I'm just thinking about pigeons. So, um, yeah, we'll eventually have a sign-off, maybe. Bye! Bye! (laughs)